The following sermon is by Dr. Josh Scally, pastor of Emanuel Baptist Church in Raleigh, North Carolina. Please visit us at 2100 Noble Road in Raleigh or on the web at ebcraleigh.com. And now, here's Pastor Josh. This morning as we go through John 4, we will see Jesus as the water of life. If you don't have uh, your own Bible, please use the Pew Bible or turn in your copy of God's Word to John 4. If you're using the Pew Bible, page 1057 should put you there. Jesus, the water of life. What we'll do is we'll go verse by verse and make observations on the way in John 4. And then at the end, draw out some conclusions for how we then should live. John 4 shows Jesus as the water of eternal life. And in the opening verses that were just read, we learn the setting. And in the setting, we notice some important details. First, we notice that Jesus intentionally chose to go through Samaria, though, as you may know, some scrupulous Jews avoided Samaria, though geographically it was more expedient. Dr. Kostenberger is worth quoting. He writes, there was, in fact, a different route many Jews traveled in order to avoid contact with Samaritans. And yet our text shows us here in verse 4 that he had to pass through Samaria. In John's gospel, when you read had to, you can just underline the will of God. This is the will of God for his son to go to this place at this time for a specific purpose. Well, if you're wondering why would Jews, scrupulous ones, go all the way east of the Jordan River to avoid the district of Samaria, the short answer is because Jews and Samaritans had bad history. There was bad blood between them. I'll give you a quick synopsis of things, some of which you probably already know. Samaritans by heritage were descendants of those Jews that maybe weren't taken in the exile or returned quickly from the exile who married foreign colonists. So they were Jews married to people from Babylon or from Media who were loyal to Assyria, the very nation who had come to destroy Israel. So by their very heritage, they were from a background that was sort of opposed to the Jewish people. But the bad blood didn't stop there. Samaritans refused to worship in Jerusalem. They put obstacles in the way of the restoration of the city of Jerusalem. And in the second century, they actually helped fight against the Jews. The blood became so bad that in 128 B.C., the high priest of Jerusalem helped burn down the temple of Mount Gerizim of the Samaritans. So there's about 500 years of bad history between the Samaritans and the Jews. And the Jews viewed the Samaritans as political rebels by birth, racial half-breeds, and religious deviants. And here we read in verse 6, not only has God chosen to send Jesus to Samaria, but here in verse 6 at the beginning, we read Jacob's well was there. We'll read in verse 12 why that's important. But now notice the setting. It's noon. It's hot. Jesus is tired. He's thirsty. And he's alone. The exact conditions in which we're normally not at our best, and yet the conditions in which God has led Jesus to this place for this special purpose. The fact that he's tired and thirsty reminds us that Jesus is not only truly God, he's truly man. And he, in exhaustion and solitude, facing difficulty, 
will face it with amazing grace. Now, that's good news for all of us because actually Hebrews tells us in chapter 4 that in Jesus Christ we have a great high priest who's been tempted in all respects like we have, yet without sin. But the power that Jesus had to live sinlessly and perfectly means that there's grace that he will give to those who go to him. It actually says, let us then with confidence draw near to the throne of grace so that we may receive mercy and grace in our time of need. As you see Jesus, tired, lonely, and exhausted, and yet serving, noticing, and sharing with someone else, know that he has that grace that he can give you. So as we keep reading, now let's see how the setting moves into the action. Verse 7, the first one we're reading for the first time together. Follow along in God's word, please, in verse 7. A woman from Samaria came to draw water. Already this is interesting because we know it's noon. And women would typically go early in the day in groups to draw water. Because remember, in the first century, you would need to draw a lot of water. You need it for bathing. You need it for cleaning. You need it for drinking, not just among your family, but among your animals. And it's an arduous task to pull it from a well by yourself and bring all that water back. In other words, Jesus would not have expected anybody like a lone woman to be there at noon. Surely this is a divine appointment. Jesus said to her, give me a drink. For his disciples had gone away into the city to buy food. So here's a Jewish man talking to a Samaritan woman. Kenneth E. Bailey has written a book called Jesus Through Middle Eastern Eyes. And he brings out four qualities of Jesus even speaking to a woman that were culturally unusual, unusual. First, Kenneth Bailey notes that Jesus breaks the social taboo against talking to a woman in an uninhabited place. Second, Jesus ignored the 500-year-old hostility between Jews and Samaritans. Third, Jesus, by his opening line, asking her for a drink, humbles himself and leans on her for assistance. It's like saying, can you help me? And fourth, Jesus affirms the woman's dignity by asking her to provide for him from her available resources. Bailey is helpful. He shows that what Jesus is doing is actually a cultural way of giving dignity and respect to the person that he's talking to. In fact, we see that from the Samaritan. Look in verse 9. The Samaritan woman said to him, How is it that you, a Jew, ask for a drink from me, a woman, of Samaria. Dr. Kostenberger, again, is worth quoting. In an act of marvelous, humble condescension, Jesus has taken the initiative by asking this woman for a drink. And she notices it in verse 9. You notice me, you respect me, you treat me with humility. At the end of verse 9, for the Jews have no dealings with Samaritans. She understands that Jesus is crossing a cultural boundary to even speak to her, let alone to share a leather bucket of water with her. I don't know how conscientious you are about drinks and how willing you are to share your cup with someone else. I remember moving here, and uh, one of the first things I did, I was meeting a professor at Southeastern, a, a friend, but it was the first time I had met with him in person. We were meeting to get coffee. When we met to get coffee, accidentally, our coffees had been switched. 
And so when we sat down, I drank out of his cup to my incredible embarrassment. (laughs) And then I was amazed that he just gamely pulled it off and drank the rest of my cup. If he got sick later, I (laughs) I can't speak to that. But his willingness to share with me was unusual. Here's Jesus willing to share with this woman, one that the rest of his culture would have siphoned off as unworthy. Why would he treat her this way? Don't you know, because God created males and females in his image. Here he has the honor and respect that is true of one who is truly God. And he shows us that the Son of Man came to seek and save the lost, no matter who they are or how they're perceived by the surrounding culture. In verse 10, Jesus now moves him towards himself. Look in verse 10. Jesus answered her. So here she is saying, why would you even talk to me? And he says more than that in verse 10. If you knew the gift of God and who it is that is saying to you. He's telling her, I am God's gift to you. Then in verse 10, you would have asked and he would have given you living water. Jesus is presenting himself as God's grace freely offered to her. In verse 11, the woman said to him, sir, You have nothing to draw water with, and the well is deep. Where would you get that living water? I mean, it's the first century. He doesn't even have a bucket, and he's offering living water to a person that he's asked to help him. Her confusion then is totally understandable. She would only be thinking at the earthly level, who is this guy that has water beyond this well? Now, in John's gospel, we've already seen people thinking at only the earthly level when Jesus is talking at the eternal level, at the temple. They thought only of the temple in Jerusalem. But Jesus said, I am the temple. Jesus told Nicodemus, you must be born again. But Nicodemus could only think of physical birth. But he was talking about rebirth from above. So even the most learned Jewish scholars could not see past the earthly when Jesus was talking about the eternal. And once again, Another person is only thinking at the temporal level when Jesus is pointing them to himself and his eternal provision. And so in verse 12, she actually challenges him. In the original language, it's stronger. She's speaking in a way that assumes that he is wrong. Verse 12, are you greater than our father Jacob? He gave us the well and drank from it himself, as did his sons and his livestock. Her assumption now is that Jesus must be wrong. But her phrasing, are you greater, is a common one in the Gospels. In the Gospels, fairly often, there's a, is Jesus greater than this? I'd like you to think on that for a second. Fill in the blank. Is Jesus greater than this that I hope in, this that I trust in. If you've never read the book of Hebrews to you, I highly commend it because it systematically takes anything you could fill in that blank and says, yes, Jesus is greater than that. So why would she bring up Jacob's well in verse 12? Here's the short answer. The Bible does not record what she claims. There's no record in the Bible of Jacob giving this well to Samaritan descendants. And yet she claims that as a matter of Samaritan tradition who venerated Jacob. Maybe this will help. In John 8, the Jews will rally around Abraham, who they venerate as their guy. But here in John 4, the Samaritans venerate Jacob as their guy. And Jesus is greater than both of their guys. 
Here he's trying to point them to who he is. And so in verse 13, Jesus said to her, everyone who drinks of this water will be thirsty again. But whoever drinks of the water that I will give him will never be thirsty again. The water that I will give him will become in him a spring of water welling up to eternal life. Jesus' claim is that water really is life. And the living water that he gives is much more than mere pronouncement of forgiveness. It's something far beyond that. Maybe you're familiar with Aaron Ralston. Aaron Ralston wrote the book Between a Rock and a Hard Place in 2004. And in 2010, the movie 127 Hours was made about Aaron's experience. Aaron was a rock climber. And he went out climbing in the Utah Canyonland National Park without telling anyone. He met some people. He had fun. He got off to a path on his own. And a boulder shifted and it pinned his arm and he could not get it out. So for actually five days, Aaron tried everything he could to get his arm out. We've been so blessed to not feel what Aaron is feeling when We, of course, all understand dehydration happens before starvation. And when you go days without water, every molecule in your body turns into searing pain. Your tongue hurts. Everything in you is crying and screaming for liquid. Here Aaron is pinned to the rock wall and he can't get out, though he tried many maneuvers to get out. And eventually he had to amputate his own arm. In doing so, he came down the canyon, and now with only one arm, he had tried to patch up the area where he was bleeding. And the first thing he did was fall face first in a puddle of gathered rainwater because the pain that was strongest to him was dehydration. Jesus is telling us here, if you knew who I was, every molecule in your body would cry out for me. If you knew what I have and how badly you need it, every fiber of your being would long for what I provide. But notice what Jesus is saying. It's much better than a gathered reservoir of water. Did you see what he said in verse 14? He doesn't have a reservoir that you can go find. The reservoir has found you and will take up residence within you. Now the reservoir comes inside of you as a spring welling up to eternal life. You see, a well like Jacob's, you can fill it and you can close it, but a spring you can't close. You put boulders on top of it and it'll bubble to the surface. Whatever collateral falls in it, it will eventually break through. Jesus is saying, if you have me, you have an internal source that cannot fail and cannot falter. Jesus then promises eternal water. Verse 15, the woman said to him, sir, give me this water so that I will not be thirsty or have to come here to draw water. I mean, it's the first century. The woman still seems to be thinking in terms of normal, regular H2O. In the first century, she would settle for running water, let alone living water. But her answer does reveal something. Notice why she doesn't want to keep living the way she's living. The end of verse 15 is very important. So that I will not have to come here to draw water. Now it makes sense why she comes at noon at the hottest point of day. Now it makes sense 
why she gathers when it's much harder to come on her own. She comes on her own because she's ashamed. She wants what Jesus has, at least for this reason, so that I don't feel socially ostracized, so that I no longer have guilt, so that I no longer struggle with how I feel. If you could give me that kind of water, Jesus, then I could just isolate and live by myself and avoid feeling the way that I feel. Can anybody else relate? How would you respond when somebody's answer now reveals what their deepest hurt is? In our conversations, if they get to that level of intimacy, maybe this is the point we come up with an excuse to get away. Instead, Jesus actually leans in. And he's the greatest physician who's ever walked the earth. And so he knows exactly what must be pulled out. And so in verse 16, Jesus said to her, go call your husband and come here. The woman answered him, I have no husband. Jesus said to her, you are right in saying I have no husband for you have had five husbands and the one you have now is not your husband. What you've said is true. The point is simple. Many commentaries have written a lot about this section, but it's not hard to understand. The point is obvious. This woman has a life that is broken. Her life has not followed God's good design, and yet it's been deeply unsatisfying. By the way, that's how it always works. We break God's design, and then we eventually learn how unsatisfying that is. Here's a woman who's broken, and yet Jesus has gently extracted all of the suppressed shame and guilt right out there to the midday sun. Her answer in verse 19. The woman said to him, Sir, I perceive that you are a prophet. (laughs) It's humorous. And yet it's almost like saying, How did you know? So here's my question for you. Be honest in your own mind right now. What if someone drew out your most personal pain? Your most deeply suppressed shame or guilt, what would you do? You might change the subject, and that's what she does here. But before we get to how she changes the subject, it's very important that you understand Jesus' intent. Jesus is convicting her. He is not condemning her. Condemnation is to pronounce a sentence of judgment. And didn't we already read in John 3, God did not send his son into the world, to judge the world, but so that the world through him might be saved because we are condemned already. There's no need for him to condemn. He's convicting because conviction has a purpose to draw you towards salvation. This woman is already separated. She's already condemned. Jesus has no intent to do that. He's drawing gently out the thing that she has suppressed the deepest so that she can be healed. Verse 19 Sir, I perceive you are a prophet. But now notice how she changes the topic. Verse 20, our fathers worshiped on this mountain, but you say that in Jerusalem is the place where people ought to worship. Have you ever played Battleship before? If you say D4 or H3 or F1 and the other person says hit, you hit it. In a conversation, if you say something that hits that deep pain, the person may lob back with an ad, well, what about you? And that's what we have in verse 20. 
But what about what you say? So not only does she change the topic, but it's a, a shift of the weight over to the Jewish people. Well, aren't you guys in the wrong? The argument is one of where is the appropriate place to worship. Here, a little bit of historical background may be helpful. The Samaritans only accepted the first five books of the Bible and their translation of it. So they picked Mount Gerizim as the place to worship because that was the last place in Deuteronomy. They rejected the rest of God-breathed scripture, Joshua all the way to Malachi, which gave key and important information about the changes that had developed. Now notice how Jesus responds to her in verse 21. Jesus said to her, Woman, believe me, the hour is coming when neither on this mountain nor in Jerusalem will you worship the Father. You worship what you do not know because you've only accepted part of Scripture. We worship what we know for salvation is from the Jews. We accept the full revelation of Scripture. But the hour is coming and is now here when the true worshipers will worship the Father in spirit and truth. For the Father is seeking such people to worship him. God is spirit. And those who worship him must worship him in spirit and truth. Do you see how wise Jesus' answer is? Jesus doesn't avoid arguments. But his goal is not to win arguments, but to win people to himself. Have you not noticed how people tend to lean towards one? Well, I just want to win the debate. I want to win the argument. Or, well, I just want to preserve the friendship. Jesus not only puts them together, he prioritizes them correctly. You, you speak the truth in love, and, and you try to honestly discuss the argument. But that's never the goal. The goal is for the person to be connected to Jesus. Jesus gets to the heart of the matter. We were made to walk with God. Adam and Eve were made for worship and joy in the Lord. We were made to enjoy God forever. That's the key issue. Now, verse 25, the woman said to him, I know that Messiah is coming, he who is called Christ. When he comes, he will tell us all things. It's almost like she's saying, well, we can't solve this, but if the Messiah was here, he could solve it for us. Verse 26, Jesus said to her, I who speak to you am he. Here, the climax of the text is the very person who solves all the questions is the person she's talking to. Jesus is the Christ. And he is clearer to her about that than he has been to any of his disciples. See, Jesus is the Son of Man, and he has come to seek and save the lost, no matter who they are or how they've lived. Do you know this morning there is someone who can tell us all things? Jesus knows all things about you. He knows all your hidden things. He knows all your secret shame. He knows all your suppressed guilt. He knows all your counter arguments and the real reason you make them. And he's the answer to all of them. And no matter what you've suppressed or hidden, he's come to seek and save the lost. No matter who we are or how we've lived. We haven't sinned beyond the Son of Man who seeks sinners. Now, perhaps this morning, you are like the woman, and your guilt has been brought out to the midday sun, and Jesus is right in front of you. But perhaps you're the opposite. Perhaps you're one of those people who says, well, maybe that woman needs Jesus, but not me. I mean, I don't have the kind of problems she has. I'm a great person. 
I have everything going the way I want it to go. I have nothing that I'm ashamed of, uh, lest you think that this is out of the norm. We have a recent president who said that he has never confessed because he's never done anything wrong. So if you're one of those people, you should know that um, when you say that you have no need or that you've never done anything wrong, the only thing that you're revealing is that you have a broken conscience. One can feel shameless and yet be guilty, as are many murderers. In the Pilgrim's Progress, the city of destruction is full of inhabitants who have a burden of guilt symbolized by a massive and heavy backpack, but only one sees it. The others not seeing it does not in any way change its objective existence. Hopefully this morning, like the woman, you are realizing your need. But if this morning you haven't yet admitted your need, then you will die of thirst. So here's how I've prayed for you this, this week. I have prayed that if anyone, and I'm talking also to Christians this morning, if anyone thinks, you know, I really am fine and I really don't need Jesus, then I'm praying God will pull out of you what you think you've hidden from him. Now verse 27. And in this falling action, we'll see how divergently people respond to who Jesus is. The disciples vis-a-vis the Samaritan woman. Verse 27. Just then his disciples came back. They marveled that he was talking with a woman. As I said, that was culturally unusual. But no one said, what do you seek? Or why are you talking with her? They had gone to town to get food. They come back. No one is willing to challenge him that he had been speaking with a woman. Verse 28. So the woman left her water jar and went away into town and said to the people, come, see a man who told me all that I ever did. Can this be the Christ? They went out of the town and they were coming to him. Notice how different the text is showing us already these responses are. The disciples come back dazed and confused. The Samaritan woman goes with a new purpose. Here's how good God is. Does her faith sound convincing? And yet by the end of the text, many will be convinced. Remember, friend, God does not save us because of the strength of our faith. He saves people with feeble faith who are trusting in the right object, his son. Here in cautious optimism, she says, can this be the Christ? But as she talks to other people. But wait, notice who she's talking to. Remember Nicodemus? John 3, he comes at night, doesn't want anyone to know. He's talking to Jesus. He leaves, doesn't want anyone to know. He had talked to Jesus. I mean, he's an important religious man. Here's a woman who has been shamed by her entire village. And after she comes to meet Jesus, who does she go talk to about Jesus? Her entire village, the very people who had shamed her. Where did that courage come from? From Jesus. Here's an application for those of you who do know the Lord Jesus. Friend, because of Jesus, God can send you to the very people that you think you could never talk to about Jesus. Your spouse, your children, your neighbors, your coworkers, the very people that you think, no, they would never listen to me. Yes, they would. You say, man, they don't know, but they know how bad I was. Great. Now you can tell them how great Jesus is. Also, where did this courage from? This is a woman that came in the middle of the day at the worst time trying to be alone. Now she's going and talking to other people. 
What does that courage show us? It shows us that Jesus radically changes us. When we come to know the Lord, the old has passed and the new has come. Surely attitudes and actions and affections, contrary to our natural temperament, start to define us because we have Christ living in us. People who were quiet are now bold. People who were forceful are now meek. And perhaps most importantly, notice her words. Come see a man who told me all that I ever did. Relativists think they've never done anything wrong. Moralists refuse to admit they've ever done anything wrong. This woman says, come see this man who told me everything I ever did wrong. And he was right. Now the following reads like a meanwhile Verses 31 through 35 talk about what the disciples did in the meantime. And these could be a sermon of their own. We don't have the time to do it. So let's glean the main point and not miss the main plot, which is Jesus and the Samaritan woman. The disciples are hungering for the wrong food. So they haven't gone out in faith, trusting God to save the lost who are ripe unto harvest. So look in verse 31. Meanwhile, the disciples were urging him, saying, Rabbi, Eat, But he said to them, I have food to eat that you do not know about. So the disciples said to one another, has anyone brought him something to eat? (laughs) 34, Jesus said to them, my food is to do the will of him who sent me and to accomplish his work. Remember at the beginning, I told you Jesus is tired, he's thirsty, and he's alone, and yet he is sustained. And he gives that same grace to us. Verse 35, do you not say... And now he'll give two common sayings in Jewish life. There are yet four months, then comes the harvest. Look, I tell you, lift up your eyes. See that the fields are white for harvest. He takes their agricultural maxim and turns it into a missional statement. Verse 36, already the one who reaps is receiving wages and gathering fruit for eternal life, so that sower and reaper may rejoice together. Verse 37, for here the saying holds true. Here's the second saying he's quoting from Jewish life. One sows and another reaps. Do you get the point of the saying? The point of the saying is there's a division of labor, but Jesus is uniting them. Verse 38, I sent you to reap that for which you did not labor. Others have labored, and you've entered into their labor. Now, I I know that at one sense, there are multiple people who have labored, but if you ask who has labored, and you ask high enough, like who sent this person and who sent that person and why were they? If you ask high enough, there's only one person left. Who really did all the laboring? Jesus. Think about agricultural metaphors. The seed has life, and then it is death, and then it brings forth much life, and then it can be reaped. Jesus came and lived. But unlike all of us, he lived never sinning, always said the right thing, thought the right thing, felt the right thing, did the right thing, also withheld from doing the wrong thing in all of those categories as well. He lived as the perfect seed, and he lived alone that way. And then he died. He died as the seed that goes into the ground. And when he died, his disciples deserted him. He died alone. And then he raised as the seed emerges in new life that can bring forth much fruit. And when he emerged from the tomb, he emerged alone. And yet when it's time to reap, 
He says, so send I you, and I will be with you wherever you go so that we're never alone. One real laborer, multiple people reap, and yet we rejoice together. If you ask high enough, there's only one person left, and that person left is Jesus, and he is sending his followers to reap fruit that he has done the labor for. Here's what that means for you, Christian. Jesus is sending you. In fact, you're already sent. Your family, your neighborhood, your network, the people, in fact, that you like the least are the ones that he is sending you to. The stranger, the outcast, the other side. The other cultures, tribes, tongues, and ways of life. God sends you into that harvest as the Lord of it. There's a couple principles for reaping that are in this passage. The first one, obviously only Jesus can perceive a person's heart at the most ultimate level. But Jesus does do something here that any one of us could do, and that is Jesus listens to the woman. When she says, I don't want to be here in the middle of the day, he catches that. Let me push this out. Um, When I'm preaching on a Sunday, I hope you would not take that as an example of how you would share the gospel to someone else. Because this here is a monologue. And that is not what it should be when we're with someone else. If we're having coffee with someone we're trying to bring to the Lord, normally 50 minutes are listening and maybe 10 minutes are speaking. Jesus cares to know her life, and that is why he's able to address her need. He listens, but he does something else. He crosses cultural lines of social and moral boundaries. Now, like dough that's in a mixing bowl and picks up whatever is in that mixing bowl. So you and I live in a culture and we pick up like sticky beans all the moments of our culture and then we bring them to the Bible. And so unfortunately, sometimes when we read the Bible, we layer it with our cultural stickiness, our political values. So I'm about to say something that may make some of you angry. And you may email me and say, Josh, that was a politically liberal statement you made. I'm not trying to make a political statement. I'm just trying to draw out something from the Bible. Now that we're all on edge, let me tell you what I was going to say. I just want to draw out Jesus is crossing lines that society has made. And we cannot overlook the importance of Jesus seeking and saving a Samaritan woman, though everybody else thought that was an unbreakable boundary. Remember, when he emerges from the tomb, He first chooses Mary Magdalene. So I'm fully aware. I really am. I've I've read it out. I'm fully aware of people who take that principle in an unwise and unbiblical direction. But we cannot move the pendulum the other way and deny that if we're going to be like Jesus, we must have a heart for people who we naturally view with skepticism or cultural hostility. I'll even hazard a specific example. If you bring up immigration, no doubt in an election year, (laughs) you get lots of pushback. But as believers, our thoughts should be, praise the Lord. God is bringing people from all over the world in our neighborhoods. Ought we not cross those boundaries to bring people to Jesus? See, the very issue here is one that will come up time and time again. Grace is so surprising that many people are actually offended by it. 
Grace is so surprising that it makes many people angry. You see, the grace of God does not go to those who we tend to think deserve it. The grace of Jesus is fundamentally different from all man-made systems of treatment. Look at what the Bible says. This woman is not in any way demonstrably seeking Jesus. And yet, in surprising grace, Jesus has sought and saved her. One day, Christian, if we are in heaven and we meet this woman and ask her what her name is, she will no doubt tell us that we are there for the same reason she is there, because God sought us when we were not seeking him, and he brought us to his son. See, grace surprises us, and it offends some. In fact, grace is so surprising and offensive that it really causes Jesus to not fit anything that we're in. Perhaps while we were reading this today, you thought something like this. Well, good for Jesus. Jesus is finally treating women almost as well as we treat them today. Maybe he's catching up with us. You know, he was a man ahead of his times, and, and now he's caught up and he knows how to behave the right way. Oh, rubbish. All the times of mankind have never caught up with Jesus. Pick any values that are popular in our current space of speck and time. Some are right, some are wrong. We're not the measuring stick, he is. In this passage, we see how he acts. We learn from his love. We surely can't hold him into account for our own man-made values. The surprising grace of God comes to a climax in verse 39. In these closing verses, we see how God's surprising grace reaches the least, the last, and the lost. Many Samaritans from that town believed in him because of the woman's testimony. He told me all that I ever did. So when the Samaritans came to him, they asked him to stay with them, and he stayed where? Two days. And many more believed because of his word. They said to the woman, it is no longer because of what you said that we believe, for we have heard for ourselves, and we know that this is indeed the Savior of the world. And now among the social outcasts, the least, the last, and the lost, Jesus has wide reception. I was on the phone with my dad this Friday, just talking about life, and it just came up organically. I, I respect my father's personal evangelism more than anybody I've ever known. And he told me, he says, son, I've been in kind of a dry period. And so the other day, mom was sick. My mom's recovering from double cataract surgery. And so he was saying, you know, we haven't been out in a while. So I prayed, Lord, I'm, I'm going to go to Kroger. If you don't know what Kroger is, it's food line for Michigan. Okay. So I'm going to go to Kroger. Lord, show me someone there that you want to bring across my, my path. And so he prayed. And the woman who was cutting the meat at the counter they started to talk about where they grew up in East Detroit, and they connected with one another, though their skin color is different, so many other things are different, they connected right away. My dad told her all about the Lord and what he's been doing in his life, and then my dad invited her to his church, and, and I pray that this morning, we prayed over the phone, that she would be at Faith in Michigan where my dad goes to church. So what he did is exactly what the Samaritan woman did. I just share my testimony, and then I hope you come to Jesus. I tell you what God's done in me. I invite you to a place where you can hear about him. But then you have to connect with Jesus. But do you see how willing Jesus is to connect with you? He stayed there two days. 
See, all we can do is tell people about the Lord Jesus, but then when they connect with him, he is more than willing to give himself to them. Here's how willing he is. In verse 23, when they were debating worship, Jesus told him, the hour is coming and is now here. What hour? The hour of his death. They're talking about the temple, and he affirms, yes, we do need a temple. We do need a place where God and man can meet. We do need a sacrifice that takes away our sin. I'm that temple. I'm that sacrifice. The hour has come. In fact, it's now here. I've come to die to remove your sin. You see, this is not the only time in the Bible that Jesus is thirsty. This conversation all began with him telling her, Will you please give me something to drink? Do you remember the other time he says, will you please give me something to drink? It's when he's nailed to the cross. And instead of satisfying liquid, he's giving something to make his dehydration increase further. And there he is. The water of life. Dying of thirst. So that you and I will never thirst again. See, the Lord Jesus is fulfilling God's saving grace for us. Psalm 22, verse 14. I am poured out like water. All my bones are out of joint. My heart is like wax. My strength is dried up like a potsherd, and my tongue sticks to my jaws. You lay me in the dust of death. They have pierced my hands and my feet. They divide my garments among them, for my clothing they cast lots. When was that fulfilled? And here's how Psalm 22 finishes. All the ends of the earth shall remember and turn to the Lord. Do you see why the Samaritan said, indeed, this is the Savior of the world? So four quick conclusions for you to guide the way we live. First, Jesus, the Son of Man, has come to seek and save the lost. No matter who they are or how they've lived. And that means you. And that means that person in your family who you think can't be saved. Number two, Jesus overcomes our past and gives us a new purpose. To know him and make him known. Here's a woman who was known for scandal and now she's known for her savior. Number three, Jesus gives grace to sustain his servants. Jesus said, I have food that you don't know about that overcomes my exhaustion and my exertion. It's the grace of God, and it's available to us. And number four, we will truly come to Jesus, not just for the first time as believers, but every day, when we finally leave trust in our earthly things and look to him for eternal things. You know what gets lost in this whole interchange? Her jar She just leaves it at the well. The whole thing she came for. Friend, you know you're coming to God when you're ready to leave your jar. All the earthly stuff that you thought you needed, you just turn your eyes to Jesus and the things of this world grow strangely true. Let's close in prayer this morning. God, we need Jesus far more than we realize. Far, far more than we realize as believers. We turn to our earthly resources. We turn to our 
planning and our programming. Oh, Father, forgive us. Forgive us. Christ must build his church. He must turn us from one degree of glory to the next. Apart from him, we can do nothing. So make us thirsty enough that we call out for you from every fiber of our being. Give me this water that I may never thirst again. And give me a well that springs to eternal life. Someone here this morning, perhaps, has been looking to find the puddle when the everlasting water is ready to come into their heart. Help them to just receive you like the woman did. She didn't have it all figured out, but she knew enough to know. He knows who I am. He knows what I've done, and yet he loves me. And he'll forgive me, and he'll more than that, he'll give me life that will actually satisfy and never run dry. May someone right now in their own seat pray something like this. God, will you give me Jesus? I'm ready to turn away from everything else. I want him. And then help us who have him to realize we have a reservoir that cannot run dry. We have God's son. And Lord, in him, may you refresh us again this morning. In Christ I pray, amen. You've been listening to Josh Scally, pastor of Emanuel Baptist Church in Raleigh, North Carolina. For more information and free access to other messages, go to ebcraleigh.com. That's E-B-C-R-A-L-E-I-G-H dot com.